Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your new host, Tony Brown, and I am the co-host of this channel with Andy Boyd. And today we're talking to Rachel Cowder Nailbuff about her new book, Stages, on dying, working, and feeling. So, uh, Rachel, welcome to the show. Tony, thank you so much for having me and inviting me. And I... Yeah, of course. And I'd like to start by um, talking a little bit about yourself. What would you say the thesis of your book is? And um, it's a and how did you sort of get into um, your whole process as a performing arts creator and an elder uh, care center? Um, (laughs) All right. Well, I think this book is kind of hard to summarize Mm -hmm. as a simple thesis um because it's sort of this hybrid form of a book very much about um multiplicity of feelings but i'm 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 going to try it's so just to give listeners an overview it's um a collection of interviews with end of life care workers interspersed with my own writing about loss and how working at an elder care facility in their art therapy department completely changed me and um, how spending time with death and dying also gave me so much perspective on kind of American society right now. Um, And I think if I could find one thesis, I think it would be that Um, we need to reevaluate the role of care in our society and also to acknowledge the role of loss and grief in American life. Um, right. No, that's great. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I think in terms of how I, how I got there, it was, um, really kind of by accident. I don't have a background in healthcare or end of life care. I, um, am trained as a playwright and I was hired by a sort of experimental art therapy, um, wing of NYU. They commissioned me actually to work as a playwright embedded in the art therapy department of a nursing home. And for many years, this was actually when I was in grad school, getting my master's in playwriting. um, I had been very troubled and confused by the state of commercial and professional theater, even experimental theater. 
Um, and so when I got this job offer kind of out of the blue to work in an art therapy department, I was really curious about um, what it would mean to work as a writer where writing has such an explicit function and is so, um, yes, explicitly connected to health and healing. And that just felt so apart from theater as entertainment um, and writing as entertainment. And so I went in mostly to kind of restore my faith in theater and writing and to see if I could, if I believe that it has that essential function. And I think like end of life. So, so I worked as a playwright um, with nursing home residents um, my first year that I was there to run a theater group, to co-run a theater group with um, some drama therapists. And then my second year I worked there to make a play with their staff. Um, and I left feeling like art really does have a healing function and end of life care makes it really explicit or like end of life makes it really explicit that theater heals. I think um, we see that relationship with music a lot more. Like you can imagine um, Alzheimer's patients or people with Parkinson's. There are so many videos of people who music suddenly taps something um, taps into people's, there's actually something on a neurological level that, that allows people to move in new ways. But I think theater and art always does that. And, um, yeah. And so, and so in some ways, um, I was there working, but I also was sort of, um, having my, my worldview and belief in art (laughs) affirmed, yeah. Totally. So you're kind of having almost a legitimate direct impact through therapy on both the 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 people who are the residents and the workers. Right, right. Yeah. So like they needed the plays we were working on. Um for the residents, we ended up doing an adaptation of The Birds by Aristophanes, which became a kind of way for a group of nursing home residents who didn't know each other and who all felt very isolated to, of course, create community, which happens with any theater production, but also really like use this ancient play as a mm, vehicle to process the disruption in their lives because the play is also about um, a group of lost Athenians who have to kind of make an unexpected home with a flock of birds. <laughs> and so it became, um, yeah, very clearly like a group um, therapy session every week as we would discuss like what the play meant in the context of their lives that seems like a really um, palpable metaphor now that you just say it out loud like that. About the birds? The the birds being lost and having to make a new mm-hmm. home. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that play has so much wisdom. And originally, I was commissioned to write something new. But um, <laughs> residents 
she taught me pretty quickly that they didn't have time to waste. They like after our first meeting, they were like, great. So where's the script? And I was like, oh, well, typically, you know, playwrights take six months to write something. And I was supposed to work there the whole year. Um, And they were like, "Uh, girl, like we don't have six months. (laughs) 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 Like we need to start next week. (laughs) Right. So uh, yeah. And this story like you said, was so resonant and um, also not having it be like a personal play allowed everyone to critique it, which was nice and pick it apart. Um, Yeah. Yes. So, so when you say kind of, you went in there to, to write a play and then um, you kind of settle with, with um, choosing a script, choosing the birds is there a way, does it change your perspective or um, how does it influence your idea of authorship and your and the resident's take on the birds? Mm, yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I really, I really think that no one ever writes anything alone. And I think that that's even more true in theater, um, which is a collective, inherently collective art form. Um, And so in stages, this book um, that we're talking about today, you'll see that um, even though my grandma is very upset with this, my name isn't on the cover because it feels like it is collectively authored because it's a combination of interviews and then also my own writing. And similarly with um, The Birds, I adapted it from Aristophanes' original play, which was translated. Um, so there's a translator, there's me, and then the whole group was also, um, we credited them as co-authors, as well as the uh, director, uh, Barbara Kanan, who's a drama therapist. And um, yeah, I don't know why people feel the need to have single authorship, but um, it feels like I don't know, symbolic of kind of um, the unhealthy role of of the ego um, as it's connected to the arts right now. And I think therapeutic theater and process-driven theater um, really challenge that. But <laughs> also, I don't know, you come up against a lot of roadblocks in um, – professional theater and, and like structures for it. Like even on just the website for the production, um, you know, they ask for one author, um, or in marketing materials, they want to know who something is by. And it's always like, wait, this is actually a whole conversation. Um, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, that makes, that makes total sense. It kind of sounds it, it definitely the commercial setting of theater um, doesn't kind of allow the allow for the collective process. If you yeah, will. and actors like you actors are always such a key um, part of developing a play, especially if it's a new play. You know, you tailor language. I think I think any new production tailors language around its probably its first cast, and so it feels crazy to not credit those people for bringing like who they are to the table 
um, in some way. And in therapeutic theater, that's even more so because you're literally writing for someone to maybe play a character that they have never gotten to play before um, or to collaboratively shape a character. Like in our play, every um, resident and participant basically chose a bird to play um and that bird became so symbolic for mostly an aspect of themselves that they felt wasn't really seen um <laughs> mhm mhm so yeah we had um a vulture one one retired opera singer who actually very tragically lost his voice and was on an oxygen tank played a vulture and it allowed him to sort of use humor to express this um, aspect of this loss because his voice was really raspy and like he chose that and that was so healing I think for everyone to be able to laugh at his like growly voice together um, that's just one example so let's shift a little bit to uh, you so in the first year you did the birds correct with the residents and then the second year you started to work with the health the elder care workers correct that's right. So the second year um, after we did this production with residents, basically the art therapy department felt like it was actually unfair to only offer art therapy to residents and not to staff. Um, and that coincided with a commission um, that we got from, um, oh, did I just pause something? No, I didn't. Okay. No, you're good. Um, Okay. It coincided with a commission that uh, we got from Reimagine End of Life, which is this festival about death and dying. And so the nursing home proposed doing a project that would be performed for that festival with their staff. And they asked me before the process started to, um, view this process as a way to study resilience and why it is so hard for nursing home workers and end of life care workers to do what they do and why certain and and, and sort of what people have learned from working with death and dying every day. Um, Now, now actually to, to piggyback off that, what kind of system would you say elder care and care workers exist in and how, how are they valued? It's such a, such an important question, especially right now. I think it's, it's kind of chilling how it's at the top of everyone's minds and how evident it is that end of life care workers are, and care workers in general are exceptionally undervalued. Um, Yeah. I mean, just, as an overview, I hadn't had a lot of experiences with nursing homes. And so just on like a cultural level, it's pretty evident that end of life care workers are completely segregated from society and that it's invisible work, whether it's in a nursing home or sometimes even in a hospital or whether it's at home and you're an unpaid caregiver, which many end of life caregivers are. So I think there is there's that, um, which is evident or, or, you know, invisible. Um, but then on a practical, more concrete level, um, 
so many of the people that are doing important work in end-of-life care are not necessarily even recognized as doing that. So I think like housekeepers um, are doing as as important work as as nurses are in the sense that they're the ones who are checking in on people every day and they're the ones that are making these places function. People are getting paid minimum wage. Um, and I think because our entire healthcare system is driven by the bottom line as opposed to care, um, people are basically exploited for what they do because people are asked to perform extraordinary acts of emotional care in end of life care. Um, but because we don't actually, because healthcare doesn't value emotional labor, um, or small gestures of care, like remembering someone's birthday or buying someone a plant or staying in a room to hold someone's hand. Um, care workers are actually, punished for doing their jobs well. Um, and we still operate in the healthcare system where time equals money, um, as opposed to time, um, being a part of health and care and healing and end of life care is, is slow work. And, um, interviewing everyone pretty consistently across the board from, from this nursing home, I think people felt like they weren't given the chance to actually do their jobs because they aren't adequately um, compensated for um, the work that they do, um, the important work that they do in our society. It's just really strange. I think if you look at the hierarchy of like who gets paid the most versus who gets paid the least, like why care work is so close to the bottom when it's upholding society and that um, the structure of it is really punishing because there isn't enough time to do the work in the right way and then there's no structure in place to support staff who are grieving. Um, It's a really rambly answer, but I think um, it's just broken in all sorts of ways that can ultimately be tied to capitalism um, and the way that that intertwines with healthcare. Um, And I think like looking at death and dying, we can see that um, we really need to reimagine healthcare. Right, exactly. And and what I like about your book is that it's a complete, top to bottom insight of healthcare work because you know it seems to me that in our society when you think of healthcare workers or care workers you think of you the the nurses and the doctors um the people from the business aspect people who kind of have degrees if you will um or in positions, but it's really every single person at every single care center plays a role as a care worker and should be considered care workers. Like, like you cover, you know, from people who work in the cafeteria to um, people who work as the engineer of, of the facility, right? No, that's completely right. Yeah, no, you put it so well. And I think um, 
And oh, just yeah. to clarify, when mm-hmm. I say degrees, like I'm not saying that other people don't have degrees. It, it's just like we think of degrees as as um, as in the same length or on the same plane as like their profession. Totally, totally. I um, know. I mean, I think I think like right now because of coronavirus, we're seeing that as well. Like. We typically, I mean, the news is focusing on ER doctors who are dying, but we really have to zoom out to see that right now, Uber and Lyft drivers, like gig economy drivers are also healthcare workers because they are the ones delivering people to hospitals because ambulances are so expensive. And so now to be a driver also means to be a healthcare worker. Um, and those people's bodies are on the line. And I mean, I don't think those people chose to be healthcare workers. So that's part of like what makes it a really tragic situation. But it also being really clear about that, um, I think would allow us to restructure healthcare in a more humane way, um, which I hope will happen because then it would allow us to better prepare and compensate and protect everyone. And so like, yeah, looking at this nursing home, I feel like housekeepers, people who work in the cafeteria of a nursing home should be incredibly well compensated and viewed as much more than cafeteria workers, much more than housekeepers. They should be viewed as um, a, yeah, a part, a part of the web of care. Um, I mean, I, it's really hard thinking about this book and all of those people that I interviewed and I really hope that everyone is okay. Um, I just keep thinking about how we'll memorialize everyone who works in end of life care. Um, and I'm, I've been thinking about this even before coronavirus, but just I feel like people who are nurses and people who are janitors and anyone that works in a hospital, like these are the people we should be, these are the people who should be on our statues, you know, these are the people who allow, who hold up people in the, in the most vulnerable, transformative passageways of our lives and yet they're rendered completely invisible right now right and you kind of mentioned in your book how you think that all healthcare workers should be given a parade of sorts as as a way to like memorialize and we as a society collectively acknowledging the work that they contribute to our society right yeah yeah i um i at the beginning of this job, basically, I, you know, I was told like that my work would culminate in a play, in a performance, um, which happened at NYU um, in their theater downtown. But I was like, that's so, after I started working there, I was like, this is so inadequate. Like, it can't just be one play. Like, this has to be a ceremony in the same way that we honor veterans um, or war heroes. Like, we have to honor this. I mean, we use the word service, right? Like we, we honor people's service, um, abroad, um, in, um, who are enlisted, right. Or, or, who, or who fight. And it's like, right. 
hair workers are fighting every day. Like I can't, they're putting their bodies on the line. I cannot think of a more important service to honor. Um, and so, yeah, a play feels like a start, but what I really fantasize about is like, I don't know. I mean, it's about a cultural shift. And so I think in that sense, like award ceremonies do reflect that. Um, but right now, because of coronavirus, I'm like, hold on, now even that's inadequate. <laughs> like, right. fuck memorializing and fuck ceremony. Like, we also just need, like, a major restructuring of basic protection and pay, um, which, yeah, I think, I think, I don't In know, the- I, mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say the classic way to like memorialize them now, or I think about it. My my mom never says anything, but I love like nurse appreciation day. And it's just, they just get lunch. Oh God. You know, like a pizza party. That's like such the way our system functions. That's just, Hey everybody make a, make a Facebook status. And uh, it's lunch is on corporate today. Jesus. I mean, I want to ask you like what you think it would take to, given that your mom is a nurse, um, what, yeah, what would, what would actually sincerely recognizing her look like to you? I, I honestly think it's in a way, um, that you were discussing that, that you had mentioned in your book where you're like, we should have a parade. And I was like, yeah, we, we totally should have mm-hmm. a parade, you know? And, and that's kind of where the art comes into it too, because there's, there's an artfulness to, parade pageantry to 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 honor and give ourselves as a community in thanks to to people who who work for us yeah tony i i i thank you for saying that and i i think like what hearing you talk i'm reminded about how important um the public spaces how important like the commons is for um our cultural value system and that like a thank you in private can mean something, but it's, it's limited unless it's seen and unless it's made, unless it's rendered visible. And, um, I think a lot of people that I interviewed too were like, yeah, thank you from a manager or a lunch. (laughs) I mean, people brought up lunch too. Like doesn't mean, doesn't mean shit if, you're exploited the next day um or it's not seen you know and so um yeah in that way I think all of these things need to happen we need to we need to have public rituals we need to have public ceremonies um and we need to kind of restructure the hierarchy um in, in concrete ways too of of medicine and healthcare. Right. And so in sort of when I went to your pre book launch party about a month ago, you you uh, released an interview that kind of came in conjunction with your book. And that was that that was with Thick Press, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, Thick Press is the publisher. And so uh, in your interview, you actually talked about the Green New Deal as a step in the right direction towards improving the lives of care workers. So um I'm just going to speak. Many people think of the Green New Deal right now as purely an environmental plan. Um, Could you go into detail about the other aspects of it and how it relates to care workers? 
Yes. So I think um, you're right that um, the bulk of the Green New Deal is about um, the environment, um, but embedded within it, it proposes a shift in um, emphasizing green jobs, which basically means any kind of job that isn't based in extraction. Um, and so care work under the Green New Deal would receive all sorts of um, basically new benefits and forms of like incentivization to do. So whether that's like teaching, care work, um, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be like environmental stewardship, but basically we have to view all of these jobs um, that are not extractive as green because they don't hurt the planet and we have to value those jobs the most and incentivize those jobs. Um, and I think the other important component of the Green New Deal is that it goes hand in hand with a restructuring of healthcare. <clears throat> because as a part of prioritizing care work, that also means providing better care and support for care workers. So that would also entail um, guaranteed sort of wage stand, guaranteed, uh, sorry, yeah, guaranteed sick leave, which is something that we're discussing a lot right now under coronavirus. Um, wage standards because they're across the board, um, for care work, um, guaranteed pay for the 43 million unpaid caregivers who work from home basically right now and who are unrecognized. Right. Um, so when you say the people at home, that's someone say you're in your forties and your parent is in their eighties and can't quite function their day to day on their own. So you're, you're caring for them. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And so under the Green New Deal and um, certain proposals around single payer health care um, and uh, Bernie Sanders, I think, had the most um, comprehensive proposals around disability and care, which I hope will be adopted by Biden. But <laughs> I think we're going to be fighting for for um, the next until it happens, you know, until it happens. These these are the platforms that are really worth putting our weight behind. And they basically um, entail all of these um, all of those um, directions that I just outlined um, for how care work would be under the Green New Deal, a job that people are adequately supported in doing. Um, yeah, yeah. So it would no longer be something that, yeah. So, so and, and, I, and I think, oh, I think the other thing I should say um, <laughs> is that the Green New Deal also culturally shifts our, our, our economy from being driven by um, extraction to being driven by care and stewardship. And so care work basically in this reshuffling becomes the most important kind of job there is. Um, 
So that would just mean living in a completely different world. <laughs> totally. And, and so you kind of talk about uh, care worker as, as stewardship versus um, extraction. How do you think that relates to what you've discovered um, and what the care workers that you interviewed in your book have discovered about our cultural approach to death and end of life? What what is what is our cultural yeah. approach that you think or our our mindset about it? I mean, I think right now we as a country largely live in denial of death and loss. And um I think I interviewed um a rabbi who works with people on their deathbeds and he talked about how the best most of my all of my words are actually like wrong I was about to say like most effective form of facing death but that um the best guidance he could offer people who were who were dying was to allow themselves to feel the feelings that they feel around death um which starts with acknowledging it and um, acknowledging our fear and acknowledging um, our dread or acknowledging our relief, whatever our feelings are. Um, and I think right now we as a country repress tragedy, we repress grief, um, we repress fear, we repress negativity. You know, there's this sort of embedded optimism in. American society um, that I think actually prevents us from the full range of human experience. And I think, um, I think if you want, I mean, I, I, it's interesting to view this, like this dichotomy of like extraction versus stewardship. And I think um, medicine right now is very much based about results and trying to like extend people's lives as long as possible and like get people the drugs that they need immediately, um, however expensive they are, at whatever cost to people's quality of lives. And I think by moving towards a model more of like stewardship and care and hospice and palliative care, which is not results driven as much as sort of experience driven, um, we can view death and dying as a part of life and actually open up questions like how to people, like how, how do you want to die? How do you want to be remembered? Um, right. And in your book, there's a beautiful moment where you're in California and you see this beautiful scenic view and you conclude this would be a wonderful place to die. And then you immediately follow this thought up with that. You should probably not bring that notion up to your gracious hosts for fear of sounding <laughs> too morbid. And yeah. so yeah. Um, how, how, how did, um, how was, what was your thoughts about death before, um, coming into this, um, working with this elder care and did that, um, was there a shift based on what you've learned and discovered? I mean, yeah, I think that that story says it all. Like, I think I just had this sense that every, like that, that death is taboo, um, or that it's like a downer. <laughs> um, 
And I didn't really know how to talk about it. Like when people's relatives died or loved ones died, or even I had friends who died. Um, I did, it felt like I, I was just always afraid of facing it head on. Um, you know, when people's parents, when friends' parents have died, in some cases, I don't think I even necessarily reached out to them because I was like, I don't have the right words to say, or I don't know if I should say anything. Um, so there's this almost, it's kind of like, I feel now like it was an illness that has consumed me from pretty much my whole life. Um, basically like repressing that, that death and loss are a part of life. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I, I viewed death and endings as a kind of, um, inherently tragic part of life. When Mm -hmm. after working for two years at a nursing home, I was like, Oh, they're inevitable, (laughs) obviously. And if we acknowledge them as inevitable, and if we acknowledge them as a fact of life, we can actually be so much more engaged. We can be better friends. (laughs) We can be better partners. Um, we can be better children. Um, because we can actually be there for the other people in our lives actively. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That actually reminds me of uh, my grandmother passed a few years ago. And uh, one of the things that um, she kind of knew what she wanted when she was going to die. So like in the nineties, she had her entire funeral paid for her. Um, And she had her, she joked, she had her casket picked out. She had her obituary photo. Um, Everything was like in line of what she wanted. And then there was like zero effort for our family in that sense. And we kind of just knew what our roles were going to be in that time. I love that story. And that reminds me that like one piece of advice that um, an administrator at this nursing home gave was that um, if you can talk about how someone wants to die sooner as a family, that prevents so much pain um, and animosity amongst family members down the line because one of the biggest um, kind of areas of disagreement that can really divide people permanently is arguing over what people think that their mom would have wanted. Um As opposed to like you just telling your children what you want, which involves first acknowledging that you are going to die. Um, This reminds me of a conversation with um, an end of life music therapist who um, invites her patients to view death and dying as a nine month long process in the same way that birth and pregnancy takes nine months. can we view death as an extended um, experience? Um, And in that way, can we also be deliberate about it um, and take each step as, as a step? Um, And like funeral planning is one of those steps, but I'm sure your grandma did other things too. Um, I'm sure she 
had different kinds of conversations that were more honest maybe than other people who are in denial. Totally. Um, so let's, let's shift to um, working again with the elder care workers in, in the um, putting on a play for them. Um, first off, um, one of my favorite things as a director is when someone really comes out of their shell in their performances or expresses themselves. Did that happen with any of the care workers? And you could pick out some moments for us. Yeah, I mean, I think um, everyone was so nervous because they weren't professional performers and it was so far from what they do every day. Um, like, I have actually never worked with people who were that nervous before. Um, like to the point where right before the show, someone was like, everyone had scripts that they were going to hold uh, and read from during the show. But yeah, literally right before the cast basically was like, Rachel, like, what if, what if we forget our lines? And I was like, that's why you have a script. And they were like, well, what if we forget how to read? So they were, they were so nervous. Um, and then, so just going from that place, um, and and I and I I attribute some of that nervousness to the fact that like all of these people pretty much are invisible, and to go from this completely invisible role to like the most public <laughs> visible role is like such a huge shift. We performed in this huge cathedral. There were over a hundred people in the audience, um, but so then to go from that to then immediately the show people were so calm. It felt like I, ha I had chills from the very first moment. And I think just like the very first moment of the show, there was music playing and basically everyone walked on stage one by one. And to watch people calmly take a step after a step, it felt like a glimpse of that like ritual procession pageant that we're talking about where I was like, yeah, like, I think it changed something in my DNA to watch, um, to watch a, um, cafeteria worker in a nursing home, just like take up that space in the cathedral. Like I, and, and to do it confidently and with, yeah, the, the pride and the slowness. Um, I don't know. It was so moving. Um, um, yeah. And I think, yeah, yes. And I, I, after that, I was like, I don't think I'll ever need to work with actors again. I just, I want to work with nursing home staff. Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the book too, the prior to this performance, um, you received a notification from quote, the higher ups about the impromptu show dedication. Um, and there was the, the tragedy that happened, but, um, it, you said it recentered your show on death and, and not the care workers with the dying. And it was an incredibly frustrating moment for me as a reader, because it was such a blatant act of taking a wound that desperately needed a surgical procedure and stitches, but instead just slapping on a bandaid in when a situation that just didn't even need a bandaid. Um, do, do you agree with that assessment? And if that's the attitude of people who are in power, can there ever be truly any meaningful change? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think 
um, just to give a little more context, what happened was like a day or two before our show honoring care workers, um, there had been a really tragic shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, the Tree of Life Synagogue. Um, And so, yes, the higher-ups wanted us to dedicate the show to all of the victims. And I think we do as a culture um, acknowledge, in some ways, death in the aftermath of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, what we don't acknowledge is the loss, other, other kinds of loss that are actually ongoing and woven into the fabric of this life of, of American life. Um, so, you know, we don't memorialize gun violence, um, and deaths because of that. We don't memorialize deaths in prison. We don't memorialize, um, deaths due to poverty. Like there are, there are so many kinds of ongoing death. And I think, um, and also honoring the ongoing care and, and preservation of people, um, also is invisibilized. And so that's what this show was trying to do. And so, um, in this moment where the administration wanted to suddenly switch gears, it felt so crushing. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think the only way things will change is if it comes from the bottom up because it's not going to come from the top down. And so this, um, in some ways, it's up to us, I think, cultural workers to be um, the first people that insist on valuing um, death in an equal sense. valuing and looking at care work, um, and insisting that it matters and that it should be seen publicly. And then eventually if enough of us do that and for long enough, things have to change. Right. So, um, final question to wrap things up, how can we as performing artists, um, be allies with, um, end-of-life care workers and elder care workers? Hmm. I mean, I, I think everyone is touched by this question in some way. Um, and, and I think I should start by saying that as people that work in theater and performance, um, we have a special role here because our work is public and it is embodied. And in that sense, I think it's not necessarily um, the most widespread medium, but it's the most embodied medium for actually changing people. And so when we're talking about changing cultural values, like I actually think our mediums are the most efficient way <laughs> of doing that. So in that sense, yeah, your question is so important. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think everyone can ask themselves like, what is my relationship to end of life? And what is my relationship to care work? And maybe you don't have someone that you know, who is in a nursing home, who lives in a nursing home or who works in a nursing home. But I bet that everyone is connected to a care worker in that expansive sense, whether it's 
um, a stay-at-home mom who's caring for um, her parent or um, someone who um, brings food to um, an elderly neighbor right now under um, the coronavirus. Like there are all of these gestures of care that I think are performed all of the time, but that go unnoticed. And so I think just being honest about those, um, honest about those actions and including them in the stories that we tell because they are so invisible including them, just the simple act of that, I think would um, be radical. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Tony, thank you so much for this conversation and and uh, the reflection. Yeah. The book feel... is Stages on Dying, Working, and Feeling by Rachel Cowder Nailbox. <laughs> yeah, I feel... Um... I feel like there's a lot of work ahead of us. <laughs> I think so too. All right. Thanks, so, Tony. Thank you. <laughs>